The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. We're getting down to crunch time on Beacon Hill. There's one month left in the lame duck legislative sessions, and even less time than that if the House and Senate want to send something to Governor Baker and avoid a pocket veto. Already off their plate, at least for now, is the bill that's at the same time the most heralded of this session and perhaps the most controversial. A major package of policing reforms landed on the governor's desk Tuesday after months of private negotiations in the legislature. So what's left on the agenda, such as it's known to us? What else could still be on the table and what might we see pop up in 2021? And hey, most imminently, what's the deal with the state budget? Joining us to uh, talk about all these things is uh, a nice little panel of State House reporters. We've got Steve Brown from WBUR, Shira Schoenberg from Commonwealth Magazine, and Matt Murphy from the State House News Service. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to bring a couple of our other uh, our neighbors from the State House press corps into this. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sam. Yeah, it's great to see some familiar faces that we don't often get to see anymore. Indeed. Yeah, folks are. Uh, Sometimes in the building, sometimes working remotely. And I see Steve Brown's even got quite the pandemic beard going on. So uh, that's looking good, Steve. Um, As an FYI to our listeners, we're taping this on Thursday afternoon as the House and Senate hold open their informal sessions. And there's kind of a whiff of fiscal news perhaps in the air. Um, and uh, we're waiting to see exactly what the schedule is going to be for the rest of the week. So, so let's start with um, sort of our, our imminent concern on Beacon Hill, which is the state budget, the, the one bill that the legislature is constitutionally obligated to pass uh, every year, uh, which is now, uh, well, what are we now, six months into the current fiscal year? Uh, Matt, what's the, uh, I know you've, you've been keeping some tabs on this in, in particular, uh, what's sort of the, the latest situation that we know about? Well, Sam, you're right. By the time listeners are, are listening to us pontificate, uh, on Friday, uh, this picture might look a lot different. Uh, you mentioned that the branches are currently holding open their informal sessions, uh, this Thursday afternoon, there are uh, a, a lot of indicators, let's say, piling up uh, in the in the favor of a budget getting finalized and filed potentially uh, very soon. I know a senior House official told me this afternoon to stay tuned uh, when I asked if that was going to get finalized uh, today. Uh, that is different from uh, a usual waving off, nothing to see here. So I think there are signs uh, in addition to the fact that we are now uh, here on December 3rd uh, into the month of December when uh, Governor Charlie Baker had said the last interim budget was good to cover spending through November. Uh, we know those budgets are often good for a few days, if not a week or so, uh, beyond the one-month timetable, but he has not yet filed another interim budget, another sign that uh, we could be looking at something very shortly. Yeah, and uh, Shira, um, the six lawmakers tasked with uh, negotiating that final budget bill, um, 
there's a lot of common ground between the two budgets this year, which is kind of unusual for them to be so so close. I mean, how just just how close are they, or or what might be? And this is for Steve too. What what might some of the sticking points be in in this sort of unusual circumstance where we've got pretty similar bills? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think compared to usual. Both bills are pretty similar. I mean, sure, you have the usual, you know, puts and takes of slightly different spending amounts on different line items, but they're both about $46 billion. They both rely on drawing money from the rainy day fund on accelerating collection of the sales tax. Um, There's not a lot of huge tax and fiscal policy changes that really need to be hashed out. Um, I think some of the questions will be, on some of the policy items. Um, I will note that both bodies included an amendment that would change, ex- expand abortion rights. Um, something on that will come out of conference committee. I think that one might actually be up to the governor and what he decides to do with it. Mm. Um, there's There are some disagreements about, you know, do you want to raise fees on ride hailing companies and what might that look like? There's a lot of little policy items that got thrown in there, like, for example, changes on what kind of hemp products can be sold in Massachusetts. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what, if any of these policy items actually get included when the final budget comes out. Yeah, I think a lot of the negotiations between the two branches actually took place before they even debated the budget in their respective branches. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the Senate Ways and Means Chair and the House Ways and Means Chair were were working uh, along with the folks from A&F in trying to, uh, you know, get things um, kind of situated before they even went into the process. So, uh, you know, this is the, the, you know, while the budget is coming out very late, the budget process of, you know, the, the House doing it, and then, you know, while the House is doing it, the Senate comes out with their version, it, it's going by much faster. And so, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if uh, they come out with uh, a, a compromise, because they're pretty close uh, to be going. Yeah. And as far as policy sections in the budget, uh, Shira, you mentioned the one that's gotten the most attention, which is the the so-called Roe Act amendment dealing with um, expansion of abortion access in, in Massachusetts. Um, but there are some other, as, as you mentioned, some other policy pieces sprinkled in, um, certainly not as many as we would we would normally see in a budget. Um, how, for, for any of you folks, how, how similar or, or disparate are the House and Senate versions of the abortion amendment, just thinking about how how that might be playing into the 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 length or, or or shortness of the talks. I think those are actually very similar. I think the Senate did add some additional broad language, um, which it says is needed to comply with I think new with federal rules. But I think broadly they're pretty similar. So. I'm not convinced that that's going to be a huge sticking point between the House Senate negotiators. I think that one's more likely to be a matter of are they pre-negotiating it with the governor to make sure that he signs it? And I don't know the answer to that question. Mm, good point. Um, well, let's uh, let's turn our attention to the governor's desk. Um, the uh, the Senate, whenever they pass a bill to be enacted, whenever they send it to the governor, presiding officer always says. Uh, the bill shall be laid before the governor for his approbation. Yeah, Steve, I see you mouthing along to the words. Anyone who's watched a session knows that that's always the, the script they use. I was looking at the state constitution the other day, and that's not what it says in the constitution. It says laid before the governor for his revisal. Um, so as far as this policing uh, 
policing reform bill goes, which is he's now got, what is it, uh, nine days left, eight days by the time that uh, our listeners hear this to act on that bill. Um, his options are veto it, do nothing with it, or send back some amendments. Um, how, how do we handicap his chances at at actually getting an amendment adopted on some specific part of the bill? Because we saw some close votes, but do we think that there's enough sort of uniform support for a particular edit that, that he could actually have some revisal power here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think this is a situation that we don't often uh, see on Beacon Hill because we're used to the legislature, uh, by and large, uh, aside from their willingness at times to work with the Republican administration and try and reach the best compromise possible, uh, they're usually able to pretty much run roughshod over the executive. Not so in this case. We saw a very slim veto-proof majority in the Senate. Uh, I think Democratic leaders in that branch could afford to lose one vote if the governor were to veto this bill. Uh, on the House side, they did not even weren't even able to muster a veto-proof uh, majority. So it does give uh, the governor a bit of leverage in this situation. Now, to what end? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, of some of those Democratic no votes in the House, uh, there's a lot of aspects of this bill that could have brought them to that vote. There's uh, membership on the new um, so-called post-commission that would certify and decertify police, whether or not it should be skewed towards civilians or towards law enforcement membership. There's uh, facial recognition uh, limits put in this bill. There's uh, the provisions that have to do with uh, no-knock warrants and, and also uh, the major piece regarding qualified immunity that has uh, a lot of Republicans and conservative Democrats uh, concerned about what that means uh, for uh, police officers and, and their potential to face civil lawsuits for actions they may or may not take on the job. So the governor could go in a, a lot of directions here, but I think unlike in most situations on Beacon Hill, uh, the governor really does have a lot of leverage here. And we've heard a lot of talk about veto, but I think uh, you probably hit it far more likely that word revisal uh, is probably uh, or potentially in the cards here before the governor would ever uh, begin to contemplate vetoing this whole bill. Yeah, and I would definitely agree with Matt on that one that I think the governor has been very supportive of certain parts of the bill, things like the creation of this commission to standardize police training and decertify offers for misconduct. So I can't see him vetoing this. But given that every member of his party voted against it on the floor, I think you're very likely to see it come back with amendments. And given the governor's past support for law enforcement, I think it'll, that's important to look at what aspects uh, the police have been opposed to. Um, and I know that certainly there were things about um, banning chokeholds, choke no-knock warrants, um, the ban on facial recognition technology that Matt Murphy, a lot of those things have raised some police concerns. And I think Baker is likely to be swayed by some of those concerns when it comes to what amendments he's going to be proposing. And Baker can also point to the fact on something like uh, no-knock warrant restrictions or facial recognition ban can point to uh, Attorney General Maura Healy's office and say, look, even, even, even she doesn't think that uh, we ought to be making those changes right now. Um, Steve, what, what were you going to say? I, well, I, I would be anticipating uh, quite a few amendments from, from the governor and uh, knowing that uh, one, uh, as uh, has been pointed out, uh, they don't have a veto-proof uh, majority in the House and they're very close in the Senate. 
so he can make these uh, proposed changes and and the legislature is going to have to uh, probably just live with it because they don't have a lot of time to uh, be be going back and forth over this time is running out what is the process to to amend the bill? If he sends an amendment back, is it a simple majority to adopt that amendment, or or what kind of votes would would they need in the branches to to do that? I believe, and it's been so long since we've been in, in, the, in this position, <laughs> I have point. to go back to uh, probably uh, you know Dukakis or you know, <laughs> Bill Weld or, or, or something something like that. It's been been so long. Uh, I, I believe it's basically these are the amendments I propose. Do you accept them or or, or override them? Uh, and uh, you know, depending on how many amendments there are, it, it could take a while to, to sort it all out. Hmm. Yeah, I think Steve's right on that, and I think it's it's just a, a majority as it would be uh, with any other bill. And uh, they could they could take the governor's amendments, they could uh, accept them, they could. Uh, further revise them, tweak them, send the governor back, maybe a compromise proposal. The big thing here, though, as we look at the calendar, uh, and even though uh, this session was extended from the end of July now through the first couple days of January, they have about five weeks uh, to get this done, and this process can only happen once. If the governor sends these back with amendments, uh, the House and Senate can consider them, but if they send the governor back a final bill, he will then only have the choice of signing it or vetoing it or uh, probably a a third less likely option of doing nothing with it and it would become law uh, without his signature if he just let it sit there for 10 days. I I did get a call the other day from a a longtime uh, uh, Beacon Hill observer who who pointed out that final possibility, Matt, and said, you know, a lot of the news stories he's been reading haven't pointed that out, but he encouraged us to be to be thinking about it as as a possibility. Yeah, um, well, I guess so. Maybe I should amend myself again, though. There's a fourth possibility oh. here that I don't even know we want to uh, begin to contemplate. But if this takes a long time. Uh, and they don't send him back a final bill until, say, January 1st, Mm. Uh, the governor would have his 10 days. But at the end of a two-year session, that is when, uh, I I believe it's in the Constitution, the pocket veto comes into play, and it no longer becomes law without his signature. It dies without his signature. So uh, that is a, a fourth option to consider. True, true. Uh, you mentioned the extension to January 5th. Um, it is it is a rare thing. First time we've had a, an open lame duck session like this since they did away with lame ducks back in 1995. Um, Steve, you, you mentioned something uh, when we were chatting earlier that is, is January 5th just the new July 31st? And t- tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, there are a couple of every every session there tends to be, you know, a healthcare bill in the in the pipeline, an economic development bill in the pipeline, a climate change bill, a transportation bond. Just how happens that those are all bills that are in conference. And those are usually all bills that are in conference on July 31st. They pop around seven o'clock at night, they suspend the rules, they go and they accept the conference committee report. Nobody knows what's in the final report, but they accept it. And and then it goes to the governor and it gets signed and everything. Uh, that would have been happening back on July 31st. They suspended the rules. So basically they kicked July 31st 
out to uh, to January fifth. Um, you know, there are, all the deadlines throughout the session uh, on Beacon Hill are artificial deadlines. They are deadlines that are imposed by the the joint rules, and those those deadlines can be very easily suspended by suspending the rules. This one, they cannot suspend. They can't suspend this rule and say, oh, we're going to kick this over to, to, to this is a real deadline, uh, December 5th. Uh, you know, they may they may go past midnight uh, into uh, December 6th, basically, I mean, January 6th, basically stop the clock. Um, they, I think they've done that in the past, but this is, <laughs> this is a real deadline. The, the, everything gets reset the following day. And those clocks are... Uh run through a computer now, I believe. So you can't just stop them as easily as you once did. Um, Shira, uh, you were mentioning earlier uh, some of the cases where we've seen that come into play, where something just gets sent so last minute to the governor that he can just decide to do nothing with it. Yeah, I remember in past sessions, uh, for example, we had this welfare-related cap on kids. There was overwhelming support uh, to lift this cap in the legislature, but the governor was opposed to it. So what happened was they passed this at the end of the session. The governor, I think, sent it back, or I think sent it back with an amendment. They sent him back his original version. He vetoed it. But by that point, it was so late that they were out of session, and there was nothing they could do about it. So in the end, what happened was they waited until the next session, then passed the bill again with a veto-proof majority. But it kind of stretched out this procedure from something that could have happened in July to something that was happening, I think, in January, because they just waited so long that they didn't have time to override a veto. And it's certainly possible that something like that is going to happen again if they you know, wait till the end of January and then they don't have time to consider any amendments or vetoes. And yeah, one of the other bills we saw that happen with, uh, or something similar, uh, was the flame retardants uh, bill, which uh, has been on the move again. Pretty much, I think, I think pretty much the same language uh, passed in the Senate maybe a month or two ago. Uh, but here we are with a month left in session, and I'm sure that observers of that bill might be wondering, are we just going to wind up in, in the same boat again with that one? As we look at the, we have a whiteboard here in our newsroom with all the conference committees currently pending. We've been able to cross off police, big question mark on the budget. But the other big ones that are still out there are uh, transportation borrowing bill and economic development and, and job stimulus bill, which seems kind of tailored for the times of, of where we're at right now, and climate change legislation and expansion of telehealth uh, accessibility. Uh, how do we, let's uh, kind of round robin it from uh, Matt to Shira to Steve, uh, uh, how, how do we handicap, some of those might be more likely to pop than others, but uh, with a month to go, where do they stand? Yeah, well, quickly, I was just going to piggyback off what Shira was just talking about. One other issue, in addition to the police bill, where we could see this kind of dance around the calendar with the governor is, I don't think we need to see the final budget to know that uh, an abortion expansion is going to land on the governor's desk. And unlike the police bill, the governor has line item veto uh, power over the budget. So he could send that back. We don't know what he's going to do with the the so-called Roe Act provisions, he could send that back. We could get into a, a similar situation with amendments and vetoes. Uh, but you're right. The, the governor has been looking for a number of other pieces of legislation to land on his desk, all of these conference committees. And it seems like each one 
has its sort of big question mark. Uh, the economic development bill, for one, is something that happens every two years. It seems like uh, it should be an easy one, a no-brainer, but you have uh, this legalization of sports betting put in there by the House uh, that is uh, an interesting wrinkle in those talks. The Senate hasn't wanted to take that on uh, so far this session. Um, uh, you also have the big uh, housing choices piece uh, that the governor has been trying for years to get done that found its way into a, a version uh, of these bills. And whether or not that gets included uh, is uh, up for uh, you know a debate between the two branches and something that um, we could see uh, the governor and the legislature fighting over in the final days. Shira? Uh, yep, I would definitely agree with Matt on the economic development bill. I would add that the transportation bond bill is also a must-pass bill. But again, that question becomes what gets stuck into the transportation bond bill? Because you obviously had the House pass their whole transportation revenue bill a while back with an increase on the gas tax. Um, that's probably off the table, but is it possible that some aspects of the House Transportation Revenue Bill could end up in a transportation bond bill or a budget bill for that matter? I mean, things like raising fees on Uber and Lyft. Um, so I think that the, the transportation bill is a big one. I think healthcare is really a wild card because you've got this huge question of telehealth. We've seen a massive expansion of telehealth during the pandemic. The House and the Senate have very different approaches on how to keep paying for it. But healthcare is really one of those things where they keep trying to pass these big healthcare bills and they keep getting derailed at the very end of session. And I don't think we've seen signs that the House and Senate sides are working particularly well together on the healthcare bill. Yeah. Exactly. So that one, I think, is going to be, you know, 50-50 whether that one makes it over the finish line. Yeah, last time I checked, I, they, they hadn't even held their first meeting yet for that conference committee. Granted, that was maybe a month ago, but um, certainly some tensions. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? Yeah, there, there's definitely, you say, tensions. I, I think there's still a lot of tensions between the two branches uh, that's, that's been festering for a number of years. And, and that's probably getting in the way of, of getting... Uh, some sort of agreement on on some of these these other complex bills, but not as high profile as say police uh, reform, of which the, you know there was such an outcry for that earlier this year. I mean, let's face it: back in January, we never would have thought that they would be taking up police reform. Uh, so you know that 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 has has come along. But um, again, the tensions between the branches, uh, you know, there are certain things that they just have to suck it up and, and get things done. But some of these other things, um, they can afford to, to hold off to the next session. Yeah. And, and what are some of the things that we might see not quite make it to the finish line, but, but come up again when we get to 2021? I know there's uh, that craft brewers beer distribution bill that seemed like a, a hell of a compromise between the two parties that were directly involved. And that's kind of uh, stalled out, um, not to mention the, the housing production stuff, sports betting, and uh, um, the governor's dangerousness bill is his, I think, top legislative priority. Wasn't that the first thing that he filed uh, of this session? And uh, that's the, the speaker said at one point, I think back in 2019, then in the next couple of weeks, we're going to take up a piece of that. And then we just never heard anything else about it. Um, <laughs> anything else you guys want to add to the list of, of things that we should expect to see revived at some point, maybe next year? 
I'll throw into the list the Department of Children and Families. Uh, both the House and the Senate passed versions of a DCF reform bill. Um, I think there's looking at data reporting, trying to bring more transparency to the foster care system. There's also a lot in there about kids' access to mental health care. And that's something that both branches passed, uh, but unclear if anything's going to come out before the end of the session. And if it doesn't, that one will probably get kicked down the road as well. I think a lot depends also on how long before we get back to a sense of normal in the building. Uh, everybody's working remotely. Let's face it, the state house is a, a building that is, is is built on relationships, built on seeing people in the halls and and you know meeting in the in the uh, house lobby and, and things like that, and and getting you know working with others to get things done. They're all at home, and and so it's going to take a while. I think once once we're let out of our homes again to to go and and do things then you'll start seeing the legislature reorganize and, and get their priorities going. But until then, they're sort of in a state of suspended animation. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the, um, the tricky part in, in predicting sort of these last final weeks of this formal session has been that everything, uh, at least that I thought I kind of knew about what this unusual lame duck session would look like it has kind of been thrown out the window when the legislature uh, extended uh, their formal sessions in july uh, as you mentioned sam for the first time since the 90s uh, they talked about uh, doing it uh, keeping the session open to deal with three things it was uh, the fiscal 21 budget which they were uh, waiting on to see how the pandemic progressed and how the economy rebounded it was these bills in conference and uh, we shouldn't leave out the climate change uh, bill, which is another uh, maybe 50-50 if it gets done. They could always lean on the fact that the uh, governor administratively set a net zero emission target for 2050. So uh, they may have bought them. He may have bought them a little wiggle room there. And then the third thing was any emergency COVID legislation that might pop up. Uh, and yet all of a sudden, uh, you saw the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and then abortion became an issue that they tucked into the budget, despite the speaker saying he didn't want policy in the budget. Uh, you heard the speaker go on with some advocates and talk about how he wanted to get a campus sexual assault bill done before the end of this session, which wouldn't fall into any of those three initial categories that we thought we were going to be looking at in these final months. So I really think as we get into these final days and, and weeks, uh, anything goes. And uh, the Brewer bill is a real head scratcher because I remember working one weekend when this uh, deal was struck between uh, the craft brewers and the beer distributors. And uh, Senate President Spilka was thrilled with it. She's been working on this issue for uh, many years. She has breweries like uh, Jack's Abbey in her district. And uh, it seemed like a no-brainer after all these years, both sides were actually on the same page and it quickly passed the Senate and uh, died in the House. And you never know if the House is just hanging on to this, hoping that they extract some kind of other concession from the Senate and we could see it move in the final days. But that's something that may have to carry over into the new session. And I think it's really important for us to remember just obviously the pandemic. Whatever happens with the coronavirus is really going to impact what happens in the in the legislature. I mean, we're talking about the next month, but even going forward, you know, 
is there a vaccine? Are we going to be able to return to normal? What does that mean for our economic recovery? Is there more that what lawmakers are going to have to do when it comes to unemployment benefits or sick leave or eviction protections? What's our transportation going to look like? And what are the needs going to be once we start recovering? So I think really in a lot of ways, the pandemic is going to shape not only our current situation, but also what comes next. Definitely, in terms of what they vote on, what they pass, and also, as as Steve mentioned, how they work together, um, because he is right, it's a building built on relationships, and uh, while remote sessions and Zoom meetings, as opposed to meeting in the House Members Lounge, while all of that has enabled them to keep working, there's no doubt that it's different, and and just to what extent that's impacted their workflow. I, I guess we don't really know. My my final question, I guess, as we wrap up with our, our two guest reporters on the takeout would be uh, how it's how it's impacting us as as folks who cover the building uh, working during the pandemic. I know sometimes we're remote, sometimes we might uh, we might come in in person. Um, but there is that lack for us as the folks who report the news of uh, going through the hallway and running into people and learning things in that sort of organic way. Uh, and and for my part, I'd just say that the way I found out that they were uh, filing the compromise policing reform bill was a rare thing for the pandemic. I was walking down the hall and I happened to run into one of the conferees on his way to sign the jacket, which, I mean, is just such an improbable thing with with the pandemic, and you, you don't see anybody. So, uh, Steve, Shira, then then Matt, uh, how's how, how's it working for you? How, how's how's it going covering the Golden Dome right now? Well, um, most of the time, uh, my a lot of my attention is is put to the to the governor and and his coronavirus updates. So, my my attention t- tends to be about this year seventy five percent. Charlie Baker and 25% what the legislature is, is doing. Uh, so I go in for for the governor's uh, availabilities and what have you, and and try to uh, you know maintain as much connection with the legislature as, as possible. But again, it's you know you don't you don't see people in the hall to buttonhole them and go hey what's going on and, and that kind of thing. You get a get a feel for it. Uh, you have to you know text people and and sometimes they're they're a little leery to be texting things back and putting things in writing. They, they you know it's it's a, a place where you you know you want to just be be talking to people. Yeah, I would agree with Steve. It's a lot harder to get the information you need when you're doing everything via phone, the computer, not in the building, meeting with lobbyists and members the way you would be otherwise. Um, Personally, I think I rely a lot on the Statehouse News Service. You guys are great at being our eyes and ears in the building. And it also gives an opportunity, yeah, it also gives an opportunity just to kind of step back sometimes and do some of the more in-depth stories, which are things that you can do by phone, by computer, Um, not necessarily those, you know, hallway conversations. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. That's a good point for a silver lining, though, Shira. Time for some more in-depth work. Uh, Matt? Yeah, Sam, well, as you know, after many months away, I've, I've st- started returning to the building on occasion. Uh, but uh, I let's just say I am no fan of 
uh, working in this pandemic. It's really taken that personal element out of reporting that I feel like is so important. And it also has really limited access to some of these people that you rely on uh, to both provide you information and also uh, limiting our ability to to press them and hold them accountable. I, I think, for instance, how you know, frequently we would uh, get to see the speaker after caucuses with Democrats, after leadership meetings with the governor on Monday. Uh, those are continuing for them in some ways uh, virtually, but we don't get the same access uh, to ask questions that we might otherwise. Uh, and we're forced, uh, as, as my colleagues here said, to resort to text messages and emails, which can be more easily ignored. And so uh, it's been a challenge, but, you know, we're doing our best and we'll keep doing our best. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, with everybody's help, I think we're uh, getting as much information as we can out there. So um, I want to thank uh, Steve and Shira for their work and, uh, and Sam and uh, Chris Van Buskirk, who's in the background here on this podcast, who uh, are daily presences for us at the Statehouse uh, covering these sessions as they are today. So uh, thanks to all. Hey, and thank you guys. And thanks to uh, Steve, Shira, and Matt for, for joining us today as we kind of round up the latest that's happened, but also looked ahead a bit to what still remains on the plate. And, and thanks to Chris Van Buskirk, who is the producer of this podcast. And as Matt said, is uh, one of the uh, one of the few folks that I get to see regularly in the Statehouse. So um, thanks very much, folks. And we'll uh, we'll stay tuned to these House and Senate sessions today and see see what develops. Take care. See you, Sam. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, thanks a lot. guys. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.